If we want to know Jesus, we need to know his word. And we need to let him speak to us through his word. And I'm 89 years old. I have a long, long way to go. We know Jesus. We become more sanctified when we know his word. I think when I get to see Jesus, then I will be totally and completely spiritually mature and sanctified. Well, you've heard the word sanctification already quite a few times, and maybe this is your first week back or first week in a while, and you're like, well, that's a big word. What does that mean, sanctification? And that simply means that God put you on a path to become more and more like Jesus when you put your faith in Jesus and you became a Christian. And it's that day-by-day -day, journey to become more like Christ by knowing Him and by allowing His Word uh, through prayer we talked about to change you to become more and more like Christ. And so it's easy to look at the moment we're in right this second and maybe think about your weekend and think, well, I don't think I'm doing very well. You know, I'm not making a whole lot of progress here. But I've really encouraged you to, to take a long view. Take the last five years. Look at the last five years. Is, is Jesus working in your life? Are you spending more time with him? Are you desiring to be more like him? Those are all good indicators that you are on the path to sanctification. Now, we know scripture talks a lot about how that there are many people who come to a church service, even part of a church community, who really don't know Jesus as their savior. Uh, as Chip mentioned, they maybe wanted their ticket to heaven. They prayed a prayer at one point. But there was really no desire to have Jesus as Lord. And some way, and we talked a lot about this at the beginning of the series. Go back to week one if you missed it and have more questions. But so many people, they want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. And when Jesus, Scripture tells us, when, when Jesus saved you, he put you on a path to sanctification, becoming more and more like himself. And, and it's easy, again, to look at ourselves and see all the flaws and the struggles and the sins and to wonder, is this really happening in my life? And that's why we do need to take a long view. And also, as Mr. John Cunningham in the video reminded us there, that he's 89 years old and he's still a work in progress too. Amen, Roger, right? Yeah. And uh, he's, still, uh, he's still just like us. We're all on this and we're not going to arrive until we see Jesus face to face. And then we'll be who we are. We'll be practically holy and he will make us holy completely. And so that's, that's what we want and desire. And today, as we look at the body of Christ, I think it's really important. If you have that slide, it put the slide that has the chart on it, the little, the little graph. Uh, Harrison, I think it's the next one. There we go. If you look at this, the, the little graph, the trajectory of that, I want to encourage you to remember this. When it comes to the body of Christ, that a healthy church has people all over that spectrum. And so we're, it's easy to want everyone to be spiritually mature because they've been in church for two weeks, right? Or two years, they should have arrived. And so therefore, wow, why are they not holy? Why are they not righteous? And there's a couple problems in that. One, we're not really truly being honest with ourselves and we're not seeing the own sin, our own sin. And then we're much harder to judge other people's sin than we are our own. We look at their sin and see their struggles and we're much tougher on that than we are on where we're at. And I've encouraged us throughout the series to have this grace that, that God has given us at salvation, this humility 
that says that, wow, we're all in this together and that we should be looking to encourage and lift up others, not be criticizing and condemning because a healthy church has people all over that spectrum. And so we have people who are new Christians. We have people who have been Christians for a while. And we have people who have been Christians for a long, long time. And so they're going to be at different places in their growth. But as I've warned, there are also people in this room right now who do not know Jesus or are so, so far away from Jesus right now, it's even hard to tell whether you know Jesus. And we oftentimes find that person causing discord in the church body because they're not coming from a place of grace like Jesus. They're coming from a place of pride. It says, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there. God, I'm, I thank you for you know, who I am. And this sinner's over here saying, woe is me, woe is me. And we need to see, as we're going to see today, that we need to go and help pick up that brother or sister and encourage them. That's what God has called us to do. And so we've looked at these habits of grace or these uh, channels of grace that God provides in our lives. We've looked at the, God's Word, and there's so many different ways that God uses His Word. We talk primarily about preaching and teaching of the Word, but God uses His Word in so many different facets in your life through memorization, daily reading, through Bible study, through community. God uses Bible study in so many different ways to speak to you. Then last week we looked at God's ear, which is prayer. God wants you to talk to him as well. And so we not only hear him, but we talk to him. And then one that maybe we don't think about a lot as far as a habit of grace or a spiritual discipline is our church body, our church community, those other Christians in our lives. Think about this for a second. Think about the, just the term body of Christ. Think about that for a second. So Jesus was on earth. He died. He rose again. He ascended back into heaven. And he continues his work on earth through the Holy Spirit and through his body, the church. We are the demonstration in a very tangible, real, active way of his love to the world. And so the church functions as the body of Christ. So think about your la your, this last week for you, okay? If you are a Christian, you're in Christ, you're on a path to sanctification, you are the body of Christ to those people that you hang around with. You're, you're Christ's body. You're the tangible expression of his love, his grace, and his word to them. And so as you go to work every day, we've heard the expression, the cliche, you're the only Bible that many people will ever read, but it's so true. You're the only Jesus that many people will ever see because you're his body. And so how are you doing with that? How are you doing with being his body to those who you come in contact with? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at this idea of the body. And we're going to look at a few verses to skip around a bit and then look at a couple other passages as well today. So let's pray before we read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Father God, this is your word. You said that it will not return void. And those who have the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you will give them ears to hear today, hearts to receive your message. God, the Holy Spirit within them yearns for truth. It yearns for your voice to speak into their life today. And God, if for that, those who just have sin in their life and they're so full of the world, they've turned their eyes upon the world and and so you've grown strangely dim because they're so full of the world, God. I pray that today that they will confess that and, God, be ready to hear and to respond to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, 
verse 11 and 12. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so Paul's writing here and he's saying, these spiritual gifts that have been given, and this is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts here, where the focus is upon those who are gifted to articulate God's word, to share God's word, and they're to give the word using their gifts to equip the saints, that's you, that the saints, remember what that means? That means those who are holy, those who are called out, those who are chosen, the holy ones, the sanctified ones, that's you. You are to be equipped through the word of God by those who have been given the spiritual gift of equipping through his word. And so you're to be equipped for what? The work of ministry. In other words, every person in this room that's a believer that's following Jesus is a minister, not just myself. You're a minister as well, and you're called into ministry, and you've been gifted into ministry. And so God has given you at least one spiritual gift. We talk a lot about this in our membership class. If you went through that, we'll be doing another one in a few weeks. We talk about spiritual gifts, and, and so many times people scratch their head and like, oh, man, I don't know. This seems so, you know, so mystical, like spiritual gift. I'm not sure. Here, here's some encouragement for you. Jump in, serve, be pursuing your relationship with Jesus wholeheartedly, and you'll probably determine what your spiritual gift is. You'll probably see, this is what I love to do and to serve. And so he says that the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. And so he's, he's saying, we as the body have an obligation to one another. That's what he's, he's getting at. And then look at verse 15 and 16 in the same chapter there, chapter 4. He says, Rather, and we skipped over a couple of verses, let me put this in context here, rather than being immature in your faith, rather than allowing just the waves of thought and theology that come our way that are contrary to the Bible, contrary to God, you're not thinking biblically, and you allow these things just to, to like waves, just float you around, to shift you around and throw you all over the place. You're tossed back and forth by bad thinking, by the theology. He says, rather than being immature and allowing that to happen, he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ, into him who is the head, into Christ. This is sanctification. This is what we're talking about. Growing up into Christ, growing to be more like Christ, growing into the head of the body, which is Christ. And so he says that rather than being immature, rather than just allowing your lives just to coast and you watch this news channel and you think this and you watch that news channel and you think that and you get caught up in this and you get caught up in that. He's saying, here's what I want you to do. You need to hear from me, hear from my word, be biblical in your thinking, be wise in your thinking, be part of a community, as we're going to talk about, be talking to God in prayer for wisdom. And rather than being tossed back and forth in this culture, in the society, you speak the truth in love and we grow up in every way into him who's the head. And then verse 16, from whom, this is Jesus, the whole body joined and held together at every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we get this beautiful picture of this body that's working together and each part is doing what it should be doing in order to 
help us become more and more like Jesus. And so that's why it's critical that when we talk about the word, yes, we need God's voice. That's preeminent. That's the most important thing we need is God's voice. But we also need God's ear. We need to pray, talk to God. And we critically need God's body to help us and surround us to help us on this mission of sanctification. So the body of Christ, the hands and feet, and when you're not doing your part, someone suffers. When you aren't doing your part in the body, somebody's not reaching the maturity that they should be reaching. They're not, their growth is stunted, maybe is a way to think about that. Now, I know it's easy to sit there and you think, well, I'm really not that much part of this body, or I don't really have much to offer, or, you know, I don't really know how to go about doing that. And we make these excuses when God has already told us he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us a spiritual gift, and he wants us to get busy using that because we have a critical place to play in that. And so when the body is not displaying Jesus, that means something has gone wrong. And we're not, as leaders, equipping you, the body, properly, or you're not doing your job of turning around and ministering to others and using what God has given to you. And so we're working together. We're a body. We're a community. And we're functioning properly. And here's the awesome thing when it's working right. Jesus said in John 13, 35, our love for one another is our greatest witness. By your love for one another, they, meaning outsiders, unbelievers, they will know that you're my disciples. So when we're loving each other properly, when we're serving each other properly, when we're caring and ministering to one another properly, then people look at the church and see that it's different than our society, who is full of hate, full of anger, so polarized, everybody's against everybody. But they see a church and they see something different. But when they look at the church and they see the same angry crowd, they just gather on Sundays and sing a few songs and listen to preaching, but they walk out just the same. Then what kind of apologetic, what kind of does that show to the world? What does that say to the world? That it, is there anything different about us? And so we are to love. And, and let's not just throw love out as some big sentiment like, oh, I'm to love. I, I love, you know, I love Lee and I love Bo. I, I mean, I love all you guys. But we know that love means so much more than just giving a lip service. It means being involved in people's lives, caring for one another. And that's why if you just come in on Sunday morning and you warm a seat and you leave out maybe even a little encouraged, you do nothing for the body. You really just, it's kind of selfish because it's like, take, take, take in, but I'm not really part of the DNA of this church to share and love and care and sacrifice for one another. And so too many people, the local church is kind of like a theater. You walk in, you sit down, you take your seat, you watch the, the performance, you walk out, and you come back again next week. And that's not the way that the Bible prescribes and describes what church fellowship is all about. Think about words for a second. It's interesting if you think about words that have lost their meaning over time, words that have morphed and changed over time. There's many words we use that at one point meant something totally different than they do today. Did you know this? I didn't know this until I was studying for this message. The word awful, man, that's an awful, you know, restaurant. The word awful and the word awesome were synonymous at one time. Those, they're from the same root word. Awful, awesome. But how that's changed, one means terrible, right? And one means amazing and great. 
the word meat. We think about, you know, I'm going to have some meat for dinner. All right, you're thinking animal product, right? But back in the old days, meat was the solid food, and then you had drink. So anything that wasn't drink was meat. And so, it, you know, we, we morphed into something, you know, you have to have your meat and potatoes, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's something different. All right, the word cute. I won't explain this one, but the word cute has totally changed. Here's where I'm getting to. The word fellowship, all right? The word fellowship has changed so greatly from the way that it was used in the early church. I grew up in church. Many of you grew up in church. When you think fellowship, you think of fried chicken on the grounds. You think of pizza at an afterglow. Anybody have those afterglows after church? Yeah, a few of y'all, maybe that's an independent Baptist thing. All right, and so we had fellowships, all right? And that's where we got together and hung out. But the word fellowship isn't just about fried chicken, all right? It's about what's the, the Greek word is koinonia, which means to share something in common. In other words, for genuine fellowship to occur, there must be some reality, some truth, some experience that two or more people share together. And that's what links them or binds them together. And in the early church, this was sure wasn't anything superficial. This was the gospel. This was Jesus Christ. This was their life. And so it was a partnership. It was a fellowship together of Jesus and a common shared life mission and life purpose. And so koinonia, where we get our word, where we get the phrase K-group, you may not realize that, our small groups, koinonia, fellowship, this incredible, incredibly gracious, gospel-centered, giving, sharing community as contrasted with selfish individualism. It's about me. What are you doing for me? What have you done for me lately? Koinonia is the opposite of that. It's, it's serving and giving and caring for a common goal, which is Jesus and the gospel. David Mathis writes this, and it's, it'll be on the screen. Follow along. It's, it's an incredible quote. It says, Fellowship may be the often forgotten middle child of spiritual disciplines, but she may save your life in the dark night of your soul. As you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, and the shepherd comforts you with his staff, you will discover that he has fashioned his people to act as his rod of rescue. When the desire to avail yourself of hearing his voice and his word has dried up, and your spiritual energy is gone to speak to his ear in prayer, God sends his body to bring you back. I love that. And you know why I love that? Because I have experienced that. I've been on the end where I've gone to people in the darkest of times and helped save them through God's strength and through the Holy Spirit when they were at the end of the rope. I think of specific people. Numerous people come to mind, and I would not want to use anyone from here, but I think about in Dallas. There was a guy named Scott. He and his family were very active in our church, very committed. But one night I got a call. It was close to midnight from one of our deacons, and he said, we need to go over to Scott's house. There's something really, really terrible going on there. And so we meet and we go. We go into his house, and he's drunk. His wife and his family are crying. The kids are crying. And we begin to talk to him, and he says, it's all been a fake. It's all been a fake. He said, I've been unemployed for, for months, but I've been pretending I have a job. It's all caving in on me now. It's all falling apart. 
And he went on just to describe how his life had just been full of just hypocrisy. And in that moment, me and this other brother, we, we prayed, we talked to him, we encouraged him, and we got him on a path for discipleship, for change. And the last I heard, when we left Dallas, Scott and his family were doing great. Didn't mean everything was perfect, but they were doing great. Because not only did me and the deacon rally around him in the middle of the night, but it was so much more than that. It was other people who came into his life for accountability, for care, to help spur him on in his walk. You've heard me talk many times, and many of you met my friend Jeff Oldham from Dallas, who now lives in Lubbock. But I was reminded this past week, I got a call from a church in Lubbock. Jeff's been, for the last five years or so, has been working for Texas Tech University. He left Belize, came back to the United States, has been working at Texas Tech. Well, he's been interviewing for a job as a pastor, an administrative pastor at a church there in Lubbock. And I got a call from one of their elders this past week. And it was just a delightful time of talking to this guy and sharing the past 20 years what has happened in Jeff's life. And just the, the part that I played from a guy said, hey, I got a friend who's really struggling. His marriage is completely falling apart. He's alone. He's isolated. He's in terrible shape. Will you come and we'll work out together with him at, at the school the, where he's the principal and we'll get to know him and we'll encourage him. And through us just being around him, God drew him in, changed his life. I had the privilege of baptizing him. And 20 years later, nearly 20 years later, his life has totally, totally changed. And I was able to walk through and just tell all the amazing ways that God's grace has touched him over these years. You see, that's the body being the body. And maybe you look and say, well, that's your job. You do that. But God has called all of you to do that. Just like the deacon said, grab me and said, let's go. Pastor's out of town. You're up, man. And I went. 28 years old, 29 years old. I went. You're a minister. You've been equipped. You've been called. What are you waiting on? True biblical fellowship, really doing life together, is an essential spiritual discipline. You have to have it. You need it. And here's the sad thing. We can hang out in K-group. Listen to this, K-group leaders. We can hang out in K-groups. We can be unintentional in our approach. We can think that, you know what, I'm just going to teach my lesson and I'm done for the week. And we can move on and without really engaging in life. I had a guy who, who told me I could say this, used to go to this church he said he was in a K-group in this church. He said, I was counting the other day, either four or five couples that were in our K-group are divorced now. It's like, do you mind if I share that? He's like, absolutely. Maybe it'll encourage somebody. You see, you can be in community. You can study God's word and still not be growing in sanctification. And so we, leaders, have been called to equip the saints, you, not so you can just get smarter and better and have more theology, but so you can be equipped for what reason? For the work of the ministry. To build up the body. That's your job. And so, biblical fellowship is so much more than just getting together, even circling up on Wednesday. It's being very intimately involved in each other's lives. And I want to just point out two, really quickly, two ways that I see the early church was so much different in this 
area fellowship than we are today. First, they were truly a family. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing statement. If you know anything about biblical history, you know that Jews and Gentiles had zero in common other than Jesus Christ. You had a wealthy nobleman and you had a poor servant or slave. And these people could come together because Jesus had changed them and made a difference. They had koinonia. They had something huge in common, which was Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. And so the early church, walls were broken down over their love for Jesus and their commitment to Jesus. And wealthy and poor, educated and uneducated, these people could do life together because they had something so much more important in common. And so from top to bottom, the gospel creates community like no other thing in this world. And I, I want to just say practically, that's one reason why, and I've said this many times, that's why we like to hear at Grace to encourage multi-generational K-groups. I know it's easy to want to gravitate to everybody that's in your age bracket. You know, I want everybody who's, you know, pretty much empty nesters now, and the kids are pretty much off to college, you know, because I can really identify and relate and connect. But that's not what biblical community is about. Biblical community is people from all walks united because of Jesus and we can come together. And so I encourage you not to just gravitate toward only people that are in your age bracket or, or in your stage of life when you go to find a K-group. Look for opportunities for somebody who's older to can speak into the situation that you're in and share, as they're on that trajectory a little further down than you, they can share wisdom to you and help you as you struggle. And then people behind you who you can reach out too, and help them as they struggle. So multi-generational. Mark Dever says this. He says, In gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and power of the gospel, either because of the depth of care for each other or because two people in relationship have little in common but Christ. And so that's gospel community. So you want the world to take notice? All of a sudden, there's community and, and fellowship, koinonia happening, and people look and say, well, I really didn't realize y'all had that much in common. Why are y'all hanging out together? Well, we have the most important thing in common, which is Jesus Christ, and our mission, which is to share him and live for him. And so I want to encourage you this year as we think about K-groups, a couple things. Remember one, as we're on that trajectory, no person has arrived. Nobody's arrived. Think about your marriage for a second. Does your marriage struggle at times with conflict? Does it struggle with all, both of you wanting to be on the same page about a, a problem or a situation or a desire? Do you have times when you just butt heads with one another? Does that happen to anybody in here? All right. If it does, why does that happen? Because you're two sinners married to one another. And so what happens when you take 12 sinners and put them together in a room? Each week. And then you say, do life together, not just on Wednesday night or Sunday night, but throughout the, the life, your, your week, throughout your life, do this together. You're going to have times when you're going to be 
greatly offended by others, greatly hurt by others. And so many people come up with so many excuses why they don't want to be part of a community. I've been hurt by church. You know, I just, I just can't do that. You know, I've, I've been there. I've been taken advantage of. And people are just so selfish. And, you know, I try and try and try to give, give, give. And, you know, and all they do is take, take, take. Or, you know, I, I just, I, I've shared things and people just aren't confidential. And I just can't trust people anymore. So I can't do that. And we come up with all these reasons why that we can't do it. And basically we're saying is there's too many sinners and I'm above that. You know, I, I'm beyond that. That's, you know, I'm not like them. So therefore I'm stepping back, pushing away because I can't trust those sinners. As a me, you know, I've arrived at a better place, a bigger place, right? Because I, I would never do those things. And you see there's this blindness about sin that, that doesn't show us our true heart and our true actions. And also, when, you're, when you get thrust into community with one another, real koinonia, real fellowship, we have the opportunity to live out the one another's of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, which are impossible to live out when everything's hunky-dory and great and everything's going smooth. Like, how do you obey the command to forgive as Christ forgave you? Okay, see the gospel there? Forgive, you forgive as Christ forgave you. I look and I see humbly, I admit, wow, I have been forgiven so much. How can I not forgive Kirk for what he said? How could I not do that? Because Jesus forgave me so much, a little slight, and I can't forgive that. And I'm like, I can't join, I can't be a part of this group anymore, man. He's just, he's mean. You see what we do? We say we can receive the grace but we can't give it. And the only way that you have the opportunity to give that grace is if you're offended or think you're offended. And so you consider it a joy when you get offended because I can live the gospel. I can show Jesus in this situation. But how do we get that all turned around? Yes, it hurts to get offended. Yes, it hurts to get slighted. But do you think it hurt when Jesus hung on the cross for our sin? Of course it did. So we are hurt. We look at the cross. We look at Jesus who we're becoming like. That's our goal. And we say, I can be more like Jesus if I forgive Kirk here. Or I can be selfish and not forgive Kirk and not be like Jesus. How's that for sanctification, right? You want to be like Jesus? Forgive as Christ forgave you. Live a life of love. Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He gave himself up. We give ourselves up for those in our community. We bear one another's burdens. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ. We bear burdens. We're like, oh, I barely do it in my own life. Well, let's take on Bo's problems. God says you can fulfill the law of Christ by taking on his burden as well as your own and encouraging him. And there you become more like Jesus. Submit to one another. That's a tough one, right? Submit. And here's a really tough one. Admonish one another. Scripture tells us to reprimand one another, all right? Some of you don't go crazy with that today, please. All right, you said to reprimand. I'm going to reprimand some people in my group. All right, it's done with wisdom and prayer and bathed in the word. But we're told to reprimand one another. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew If your brother offends you, if he sins against you, 
go and tell him his fault. See, I think that's what happens. The, the problems develop in the churches. I sit back here and say, I've been offended by Brennan. Is that Brennan over there? Did I see him? Yeah, I thought that. Your family's over there. Did, did you know that? Okay, just let you know. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I've been offended by Brennan. And, and, and I get my feelings hurt. And I complain. I, and I go tell Johnny Dowdy. I was like, man, Brennan, you know what he did to me? And I tell and I, and I complain. And I gossip about Brennan. And Jesus says, look, here, here's how to solve the problem. You want the best avenue? Go to your brother. All right? Go to him. You. you don't wait for him to come to you. You go to him. Think of how many problems would be solved in the church if we really, truly did what Jesus said. That if you get your feelings hurt, instead of moping and crying, complaining, and pouting and gossiping, you go to that person and you bring it up to them, between them. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. And so when matters are handled privately, there's just usually really good positive things that happen. But when we just get mad and bitter, nothing good happens. In fact, it causes division within the church. And so a, a private meeting helps to avoid problems of gossip, problems of division in the church. So there's practical. If you have a problem with somebody, don't say, well, they've got to come to me. They're the one that hurt me. You go to them. Jesus. I'm quoting Jesus there. That's pretty good authority, right? Jesus said, go to that person privately and talk to them. Go on through that chapter then. If they won't receive that, there's recourse after that. Go through and read in, in Matthew chapter 18, but we can't go spend forever there, but I encourage you to do that. And so we embrace gospel-centered community. We become more like Jesus. The second area, there's many, but the second area and final that we'll look at today, which is different from the early church's idea of fellowship and our idea of fellowship is they were in this partnership for the gospel, as I've talked about. Philippians 1.5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So he's remembering the church at Philippi, always in every prayer of mine, he's praying for them, for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So they partnered with Paul for the gospel. And so when we think about fellowship, I think about fellowship because I've been so conditioned to think this way. Hey, Super Bowl Sunday, let's have a fellowship, all right? Oh, yeah. So instantly I know what that's about. I'm going over to this house, and I'm going to have pizza, and we're going to sit and watch the Super Bowl together. That's our idea of fellowship, all right? But let me just say this. The early church's idea of fellowship would be much more inclined to be, rather than spectators watching that game, would be the guys on the field who are out there struggling every down, fighting, sweating, blood, tears. And then after every play, they get back together and they huddle and they figure out, okay, what are we going to do next? What's our next play? What are we going to run to be successful? You see, that's more of the image of fellowship in the New Testament. It's how can we spread the gospel? How can we let our neighbors and friends hear the gospel? How can we love each other better so they'll see the gospel? That when we invite people into our community and we, they come over and they're part of our home gathering together, that they feel loved and accepted and we reach out and we encourage them and we're strategic about how can I help this person move from where they are in their walk for Jesus to the next step. You see, that's what biblical fellowship is about. Disciples making disciples. We've showed this chart many times here, and we'll keep showing it for years to come. Go ahead and show that next slide, Harrison. With the, no, the next one. There we go. The discipleship process. We've talked about this many times. Here's why I want to show this. Keep that up there just for a second. 
as we grow, what happens? As we grow to be more like Christ, we become less and less infants, self-centered, and we become more and more other-centered. And not just, I love to do good things for them, but I'm doing good things so they grow in their relationship with Jesus, so they can become more kingdom-focused, so they can become a disciple-maker and a disciple-making disciple. And so this is what we're strategizing about. How can I help you become a disciple-making disciple? You see, disciple-makers aren't just the elite of this church. Because one, there's no elite in this church. And secondly, it's all of our jobs. It's every one of our jobs to be making disciples. And so I, I wanted to show that because I wanted to put some, some, really, some, some skin on this. To say that it's not enough just to, I care about that person, but you care about their, what really matters, which is their sanctification. Them moving and becoming more and more like Jesus. Hebrews 10, very familiar passage, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, we've made this pretty much about this verse about getting together. Hey, don't miss gathering together. It's important to gather together. But that's not the primary call of this passage. The primary call of this passage is when you get together, consider how you stir each other up to love and good works. Consider how you stir each other up for love and good works. But here's the reality. Most of us can go through an entire week without really considering anybody other than maybe ourselves and our immediate family in, in real spiritual consideration. Because we don't naturally sit around and think about our K group and think about, wow, let me think about how that I can stir up Elizabeth for love and good works. How can Michelle and I come alongside her and Don and just encourage them to grow in their, in their love for Jesus? Because we're very good at just, I go in, punch the clock, do my group, and I'm out. Five divorces. Ten years later. Why? Because maybe we weren't really concerned so much about other people's lives and their discipleship as we were about concerned about us, us and checked it off my list. I'm a part of a small group. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm growing. And many of you are, are objecting right now in your heart. You're saying, I can barely keep my own act together. How can I be so concerned with others? Well, two things. One is, could it be possible that the reason why you struggle so much to keep your own stuff together is because you're so self-focused that if you turn your eyes on someone else and give more and give more and give more, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. You're doing what God has equipped and called you to do. You're living out your purpose. And maybe you'll be more energized than you've ever been before. Doesn't mean your problems just go away. But it does mean that you're fulfilling what God's called you to do. And there's a, a certain joy that comes with that, right? And then secondly, when we think, I don't have the energy to serve and I don't have the energy to do for, for others... We're not doing real church. We're not doing what koinonia is all about. And so anything that we're doing is just spinning our wheels. Because as we come to know Jesus more, 
the natural outflow of that is to love other people. Jesus said it. He, he simplified it, right? Two commands. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't separate those out. Love God, love others. And so consider how you can stir one another up. Honestly, how long has it been since you've literally considered, how can I stir them up to follow Christ better? You see, we're great at, we can go and work in children's classes, we can work in Awana, we can work, go to K-Group, and never really even consider why we're there. We go because, oh man, it's my obligation, i got to do it, I'm on the schedule. And we're having an opportunity to spur and encourage someone in their walk with Jesus. And we're being the body. We're looking past our own nose, and we're serving other people, encouraging other people. We'll be launching our K-groups, as was mentioned earlier, Wednesday, September 9th, and Sunday, September 13th. And as we're launching these, I want our mindsets to change a little bit. Because we don't really want people involved in our lives, if we're honest. Tim Keller says this, and I've quoted this many times, everyone says they want community and fellowship but mention accountability or commitment to people, and they run the other way. You see, when you start to get involved in other people's lives, a lot of people don't like that. They, don't, they, don't, they, they one, they expect if you say something to them, it better be perfect, absolutely 100% perfect, because if you're not, I'll find that one little flaw, and I'm going to pick it apart. Like, who are they to tell me anything? If I see flaws in their life. Of course you do, right? Of course you do. And we know it should be done with a spirit of grace. And there are people who don't do it with a spirit of grace. But as we get into community, there's going to be opportunities for you to be held accountable. Hey, I missed you last week. Oh, I'm so tired of them trying to tell me why. You know, I, I'm doing my thing, right? And they don't want to be held accountable to a commitment they made. And, and so many times our leaders get so frustrated and they call me and they say, I don't know what to do. It's like, Half my group doesn't show up one week, and then the next week it's another half that doesn't show up, and nobody's ever there consistently, and I'm trying to do my best, and, and it's just tough. Nobody's committed. Here's the thing I've noticed since I've been in Bainbridge. Parents are more committed to their kids at the YMCA playing youth soccer than they are to church and K-group. They are. Well, we can't miss, we can't miss soccer. Like, we, our kid won't get a play, or they'll get onto our case. But we can just blow off whatever commitments to church. But I just don't get that because if Jesus is what matters, the world becomes strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And when we turn our eyes on Jesus, all of a sudden we get our priorities correct. It doesn't mean we don't keep our commitments and show integrity, but we make sure our commitments aren't in conflict with what really matters. And I think we've established the fact that Koinonia matters. Why does it matter? Because you have the message. You are Christ's body. You're his ambassador. You have spiritual gifts. We need one another, and we must grow to become more and more like Jesus in our life. We've been put on a path for sanctification, and we need one another in that process. So, head, heart, and hands. Head, true biblical fellowship is a partnership in the gospel. Let's remember that this year with K-groups. True biblical fellowship is a partnership in the gospel. Are you doing your part of that partnership? 
Are you so spiritually malnourished, malnourished that you can't give and serve and care for others? Don't try to do this on your own strength. That intimacy with God we talked about the last couple weeks has to be there. Or you'll be serving out of your own strength and you're going to hate every minute of it. But you turn your eyes on Jesus, look in his face, it becomes a lot more joyful. Heart, in your time with God, allow the Holy Spirit to move you to consider and pray for the spiritual maturity of others. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart where your prayers specifically name people in this church. And here's what K-groups do. K-groups help us scale. Even though our church is not as large as it was pre-COVID, there's still a great number of you here, and if you wanted to care for everybody in this room, it would be impossible. It's impossible for me to do that properly as your pastor in my job. That's why we scale down to K-groups, because if I have 11 other people to care for, that's way more realistic than caring for 50 or 75. And so K-groups, that is our, that, that's our system, so to speak, to make sure care happens within this body. And so if you're not in a K-group, you may not get the care that you need or even expect. And so you get into a K-group, and this becomes manageable. I can care for six other families, five other families. You know, if somebody has a baby, I can, we can put a mill train together for three people, but if we're always calling on the church, hey, mill train, next person, because we've had a lot of babies here, right? Amen, Kayla? We've had a lot of babies. And if we're calling on the church as a whole to do mill trains, it, we're gonna, the same five people show up every time, Megan Hines and four others, all right? So, so we need community. We need a, a plan to make that happen. And so K-Groups is, that, is the plan to make that happen. And so it's scaled, and so you consider and pray for the spiritual maturity, and you come alongside those people and you help. And then hands, very practically, commit to a K-Group this year. Commit to a K-Group. Don't just sign up for a K-Group. Commit to be there whenever possible. I mean, if somebody's sick, somebody has COVID-19, don't go. But otherwise, be at your K-Group. Unless you're out of town, be at your K-Group. Commit to your K-Group. I can assure you that your leader would probably find more joy in the fact that you're there consistently than if you just signed on the dotted line and showed up twice this next semester. Because they want to be intentional about discipling you, and it makes it very hard if they can't get to know you and have a relationship with you and spend time with you. And so commit to a K-group, and you're saying, okay, I want to do that. How do I do that? Well, this year's a little different. In the past, we've had the showcase. You received an email at 11.30, 15 minutes ago. Also, the app is pointed out earlier is an opportunity for you to sign up. Now, we're not going to distribute a list today that will come tomorrow in the, on your email, your Monday email, a list of our groups. And right now we are looking at trying to figure out the impact that COVID is going to have on our groups. A couple things. One, we want to keep our groups smaller intentionally because we understand that the chance of a super spread event in a home where there's 20 people crowded in is much higher than if there's uh, 10 to 12. And so we are going to attempt the best we can to cap our groups at 12. Attempt to cap our groups at 12 people. And so right now we want to just kind of gauge the interest of how many people want to be a part of a group. And then we're going to give you a chance to pick the group you want. And then if, if it has overflow or too many or we don't have enough groups, then we'll go about adding some additional groups. And so you'll get that list tomorrow. But before you get the list, I encourage you to go ahead and sign up in the app, 
respond on the email, click on the email, or um, if you don't have a, a smartphone and you're afraid you'll forget, come see me and I'll write your name down the old-fashioned way, okay? But be part of a community. If you want to be like Jesus, you need other people speaking truth into your life. You need other people spurring you along to love and good deeds. Koinonia groups, K-groups, that's how we go about it here at Grace. Be part of it. Commit to it. And love and serve one another. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that not only you've called us, you've equipped us, and you've given us your grace to deal with things that are beyond our natural ability to deal with. Unloving people, selfish people, people who will take advantage of us. That you tell us not to worry about these, but see these as an opportunity to grow more like you. And God, I pray that you'll just soften our hearts. Help us to remember who you are and how much you love us and that you're for us and you're not against us. And God, help us to see that your plan is, is always better. And help us to live and think biblically in every situation that we're in. And particularly in this area today of fellowship. Help us to really truly rely upon the body and give to the body so we can become more like you, Jesus. In your powerful, wonderful name, amen.